Uh, next week, Grace Life is going to be here with us, uh, leading us in the entire service. Um, so they're going to do the musical pieces, and I think Mike's going to preach, and some of their students are going to share some uh, testimonies with us. Grace Life is the ministry that happens at Towson and elsewhere, uh, one of our uh, specific and kind of committed ministry partners, so we're excited to have them here. The week after that is our really, really great service that we do every year with MCC. Uh, so we'll gather together. We're doing that at a different time. Cindy, 1030, as always said. Um, 1030 is when we think we're doing it. Um, I'll meet with Johan this week and kind of clarify that, but that's the plan. So we can be ready to have a great big lunch together, uh, at noonish when we finish in here. Um, there'll be traditional American Thanksgiving stuff and there'll be some Korean food and there'll be all kinds of things that are going on there. Um, I'm sure there's still need for help with that. Um, so love to have you be a part of that. Um, and then we'll be in Advent and we're going to do some interesting things in Advent too, as some other folks are going to also, um, preach. Um, so it, it's going to be a fun next few weeks. Um, but, uh, I want to wrap up this series, uh, the series that we've been in and the, and the purpose of it, the goal of the series, the intention of the series from the very beginning is that we would be reminded of our calling, reminded of what it is that we are committed to, that we as a church have, have one goal. We have one purpose. We have one vision for who we want to be and what we believe that we've been called to do. Valley exists to make disciples. And the goal of the series has been to help us uh, clarify or reinforce some of what that means, some of what it means for us to do that. And along the way, you've heard me say several times that we want to be a part of instigating radical transformation in the life of every person in the Valley area. Valley area. Towson area is what I've been saying. I don't know why I messed that one up there. Every person in the area of Towson. That includes Lutherville, the specific address we're in, and Timonium just up the street, and Cockeysville, and Hunt Valley, and uh, all of these areas that we're a part of, and Parkville, and we could go on and on and on, but we want to be a part of instigating the work that we believe the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit brings radical transformation in the lives of people when the Holy Spirit is allowed to do the work that the Holy Spirit wants to do. And that means that Valley and its people, you and me, we partner with the Spirit in helping get that work done, in instigating that work, in motivating that work. We tend the soil of our souls, of the souls of our body, of the souls of our community, preparing it for the work that the Holy Spirit longs to do. Creating a more ideal environment for the Holy Spirit to go to work. So alongside that, part of what we've done and the reason that we've been in this series is that we have uh, selected some commitments. We've written out and put together some commitments that we've put in our Constitution that, that ideally are supposed to help us be unified and aligned in this pursuit of disciple making. And I'm going to read to you what's there. And it's kind of long, but I want to read it to you. We're not going to spend a lot of time on each because we've done that in the past weeks. But uh, I, want to, I want to read to you the whole thing so you see it again. And so that you see and are reminded that of them all, we're talking about personal transformation and family transformation and missional transformation. The pieces that we've been talking about, about transformation in me and us and beyond us among our neighbors and the nation. So here's what it says in in our constitution. It says all members are asked to live a lifestyle that is committed to consistently growing in one whole life discipleship through practicing spiritual disciplines, growing in knowledge and faithfulness to Christ's likeness, and adopting a way of life that encourages becoming all God has created each member to be. Two, investment in the Valley family through sacrificial giving of time, talents, and finances. Three, 
missional living among all neighbors and nations through serving others, praying for others, sharing faith, and seeking other opportunities to show the love of Christ. So early in the series, as we began, I don't remember how long ago, six weeks ago, eight weeks ago, whatever that was, as we began this series, I talked kind of broadly about the idea of radical transformation and some of what that might look like. And then we talked through each of these areas. And then two of our folks, Jeff and Aaron, came and shared some of their own uh, kind of testimony and reflections on some of what we've been talking about. And I'm so thankful that they did so. So thankful for Jeff coming and sharing and Aaron coming and sharing what was going on in them and the ways in which this is coming to life because it personalizes part of what we're trying to say. It makes it more than words on paper and more than words that just the pastor speaks. But it's part of what is coming to life in our body and part of the work that's going on. And then last week we had this really great blessing, this last minute change in the plan as the Freemans came along, as Jeremy and Caleb uh, and Clayton came and and shared their story. Uh, And every piece of this is online if you're interested in getting the stuff that we've done in the previous weeks, uh, including uh, uh, Caleb's story. Um, But we put all that out there and they came and it was so great how it continued to speak to this idea of transformed living. What does it mean to have been completely transformed by the work the Holy Spirit's doing. Caleb's experience happened to a car accident. And the transformation that began to happen because he desired to see his life fully committed to following after Jesus after that experience. Now today we're going to wrap up looking back at Philippians chapter 4. This really, really incredible chapter that's here. In Philippians 4, we find some explanation and also an exclamation point as to what we've been able to see throughout the entire letter of of Paul's really special love for this church. This church held a special place in his heart. This church was special to Paul. They'd been partners with Paul since early on in his ministry. Joining him and all the things that he was doing and taking place in. They'd sent people to help him. They'd sent people to care for him when he was in need. They'd sent money from time to time to help support him in the ministry that he was doing. Paul believed that the church in Philippi were co-laborers in the work that he was doing. Wherever he was, whether it was in Philippi or when he went to Thessalonica or when he was in Corinth, even in other places, they saw, they, he saw them as co-laborers, as partners in this work, as, as, as co-missionaries in all that was taking place. They were special to him. And we could spend a ton of time in Philippians chapter 4. I really, really enjoyed spending the time that I have in this chapter. Matter of fact, I wanted to spend lots and lots and lots of time in this chapter. So much so, today is at least the third attempt I've made at trying to write a sermon. And this one got rewritten this morning. That never happens. I'm never okay with that taking place. I always fight against that. But there continued to be this stirring of needing to change where I was going and focus on what it was that needed to be said, of of struggling where to land. Because the whole chapter speaks to this really beautiful image and example of what it means for us to live transformed lives. He was sharing with the church in Philippi, and here's what it looks like. He was telling them how great they'd done, but also saying, now keep pressing into this. Now dive further into this. This is an important piece of what you need to get. So for me, there was that question of which piece of this does Valley need to hear this morning? So I'm going to focus on what we hear from Paul in verse 9, as he makes this promise to the church in Philippi. 
this promise when he says, Then the God of peace will be with you. I believe that valley and the Western church and our culture in general is desperate for peace. According to all reports I see, in our culture, anxiety levels are at all-time highs. Suicide rates continuing to increase. Broken relationships everywhere we look. Constant fighting and bickering and attacking of one another. We see it from politicians. We see it on the news. We see it from family members. We see it from friends. Somehow it's as if we have lost this ability to disagree with some, some sort of civility. That we could have some bit of peace even in discord, even when we disagree. And if you remember back when we talked about family stuff, we talked about the idea of how could we come together and be unified even when we don't agree on everything. Because the reality is that as we see it and as we read about it, it seems to be everywhere. On top of that, there is this, this running around nonstop from one thing to the next. This, this moving all the time and shifting from thing to thing, from challenge to challenge, from next to, from next thing to next thing, ongoing and ongoing. We are so incredibly busy. I look at people and I, and I tell them I have no understanding how kids and families today are busier than I was when I was a kid. I can't understand. I can't understand how it's true. I remember in high school that I had a job and I was an athlete and I led FCA and I was actively involved in the church. I was leading in all kinds of ministries. I was doing all kinds of things. When I went to college, I had three jobs and I was part of a fraternity and I was an RA and I worked at a church. I did all and still somehow people are busier. I don't even grasp how it's possible. But it's true because I see it in our lives and I see it in your lives and I see it in the lives of everyone that I come in contact with. We have this desire in us to take in everything, to win everything, to have everything. And I need you to hear something. This, this, this FOMO, this fear of missing out thing that is so alive in so many of us, stands in contrast to the idea of us experiencing peace. I need you to hear how how much I believe this is true. I don't actually believe that the two things can coexist. We cannot have everything and do everything and also experience peace. It's, It's just not possible. We refuse peace and choose something else when we do that. And the sad reality as we look around is that it appears to me that this living in and experiencing peace is actually not any better in the church than it is in the world around us. We are just as guilty. I've read several things recently that that talk about churches, especially churches our size. And the idea that we feel like we're doing things really, really well if we're really, really busy. It's not actually true. But that's what we tend to do. Make ourselves busy and believe that that means we're doing ministry effectively. That that lives are being changed because we're really busy. And the truth is we often replace what's supposed to be happening in the lives of our churches with busyness. 
Sorry, that's a whole nother sermon. I can't get caught going down that one. That's part of the reality that I rewrote this morning. Um, is that I get distracted because I don't have my mind set in this for the last several days. But we see in this promise of peace that, that even Jesus promised that those who would come and follow after him would experience this, this peace that was unusual and unimaginable and unspeakable that was, that was unparalleled anywhere else. In John chapter 14, verse 27, Jesus said, I'm leaving with you a gift, peace of mind and heart. And the peace I give as a gift the world cannot give. So don't be troubled or afraid. I'm not sure that many of us experience that kind of peace. I even wonder if some of us read that and believe it was just an idealistic sales pitch from Jesus. Something that wasn't really going to happen, but it sounded good. So throw it out there and see if you can win some people that will come follow along because of it. Friends, we are desperately in need of peace in our world, in our families, in our church, in our souls. And Jesus promised that this was possible. And then we find that in Philippians chapter chapter 4 that Paul circles back to the idea. And again, he focuses on this idea of, of, of this peace that is possible for the church in Philippi. And I believe pressing all the way forward to the church at Valley and so many other, and, and all of our churches, that this idea of peace was possible. That it was possible not only to live in peace, but also to have the God of peace with us. Now, if we, as we read that, and we looked at, at, the, at the end of, of verse 9 in chapter 4, and that's where the focus is. Notice that that very first sentence there starts with the word then. And when it starts with the word then, it means that we have to do some tracking back into the rest of the passage and figure out, okay, what's he, what's he, how'd he get there? What's coming next? When I was a kid, I was told that if you ever read the word therefore in the Bible, that you have to stop and ask what the therefore is there for. So what is it from the back, from before that gets us to this place? The word then works in a very similar fashion. So when we find the word then, it means that there's something before that gets us to this, something that builds us towards this place. So we're going to kind of backtrack through the beginning of Philippians chapter 4 and see what it is that brought Paul to this place. If we go all the way back to verse 4, we start to see Paul speaking to these ideas that, that we talked about weeks ago when we talked about the idea of personal transformation. These practices, these, these types of rhythms that we could experience in our life. In verse 4 he says, be joyful. In verse 5 he says, be considerate of others. In verse 6 he says, don't worry, pray, trust God and be thankful. In verse 7, we see the promise rise up again. The idea that we could have peace. It says, then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard our hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. Now, again, notice that one also began with the word then, pushing us back again to four, five, and six. This idea of being joyful, of being considerate, of not worrying, of praying, of trusting God, of being thankful in the things that are happening. 
If we continue forward, we find that in verse 8, it says that we should fix our minds on the good things of God. And then verse 9, we come to again, and we see that promise. But we just read the last half of the verse, because the first half also tells us important information about building towards this peace, about finding and living in this peace, about this God of peace being with us. As it says, keep putting into practice all you learned and received from me. Everything you heard from me and saw me doing, keep Putting into practice, Paul said. Keep doing the work. Too often, we seem to live this kind of faith that believes that if at some point in our past we decided to become a Christian, if at some point in our past we prayed some prayer, or made some public proclamation of faith that all of a sudden everything that Jesus says could be true of us should magically and mysteriously come true. Suddenly we're at peace. Suddenly all our relationships are restored. Suddenly we're less greedy. Suddenly we fix all of these problems that are in us. But that doesn't coincide with what I feel like we see Paul say in the scriptures over and over and over again. And it's the reason here that he says keep putting into practice. You and I must tend the soil of our souls. Do the work that is necessary. Yes, the Holy Spirit transforms. This is not our work. We can't fix it. It's not that we become whole, uh, that we become holy doings, just doing the things that Jesus wants us to do. But it is that we become human beings, holy human beings being transformed by the Holy Spirit. But that still means that we have work. We are in partnership. With what the Holy Spirit is doing. The Holy Spirit brings this unimaginable, unspeakable peace in us. But we have to prepare the environment. We have to do the work. We have to tend the soil of our soul. And I would talk about each of these specifically, but that's what we've done in entire sermons. So if you want to hear about the personal stuff, go back and listen to the one online that's about personal transformation. But what we need to hear this morning is that you and I, in order for this work of peace to be experienced in our own souls, we have to be committed to fully surrendering to Jesus and his ways. So that the Holy Spirit can do his work in us. Because, hear this, hear this. The Holy Spirit will not force us to be transformed. God chooses not to work that way. But in our willingness, in our work in the soil, in our surrender, in our allowing the Holy Spirit to do his work, radical transformation takes place. So let's push back a bit further, further into the passage. But Because before we see this idea of a personal transformation, which we talked about, we also see a, a mention towards the idea of family transformation that we talked about. Now, before I go there, make sure we hear this really, really well. All the letter was written to a church. None of it was written just to individuals. All the letter was written to a church. So even as we talk about this personal transformation stuff, this work that's happening in us, it is still not a solo mission. 
It is still not something that we're doing on our own. All of this work that we're doing in our own souls, preparing ourselves, silence, solitude, spiritual, sacred rhythms, spiritual practices, all the things we've talked about, while we have to choose to do them as individuals, we also do them as a body. Because this thing of following Jesus is not a solo mission. In fact, we will fail if we try and pursue it as a solo mission. It is something we do in community. But more specifically right here, as Paul speaks to the idea of family transformation, he speaks to the idea of a conflict that's going on in the church in Philippi. He mentions these two women, Judea and Syntyche. He mentions that they're in conflict together. And we get no information as to why. We get no understanding as to what's going on. But it's easy to assume the church knew what was going on. All, he didn't have to explain it to them. They already knew what was happening. He just mentioned that there was this conflict going on. And then he asked that they would fix it. He asked that they would join in restoring it. That they would work on fixing this broken relationship. That the two women would work in that way. That this partner, we don't know who it is. We just can make some assumptions. And that the church community would work together on restoring this divided relationship that existed in their midst. That they together would do the work of family transformation. Because in the new family of Jesus, Valley, the church in general, in the new family of Jesus, we do relationships different than any community on the face of the earth. We should look different relationally than the rest of our culture does. The ways in which we restore things and we fix things. People, churches, communities, families that are surrendered to the Holy Spirit, that are experiencing this idea of radical transformation, we should look different from everyone else who doesn't know anything about this. Everyone else who isn't experiencing this. And transformed people have transformed relationships. Period. Exclamation point. Transformed people experience transformed relationships. So if you aren't experiencing transformed relationships, the Holy Spirit has work to do in you. Not just in them. Oh, wow. How often do we want it to be their fault? If our relationships aren't transformed, the Holy Spirit has work to do in us because transformed people live in transformed relationships. And that doesn't mean everything's perfect or we always get along all the time. No, but it does mean that things look drastically different. If we're going to experience peace as individuals, we must pursue peace among our family. And just a few ways that we do that means that we speak well of one another. That we apologize when we've wronged someone else. That we forgive. Now, now notice the order that I put those in, right? Apologize and then forgive. But that's not actually the biblical order. Actually transform people. Forgive before anyone has asked for the apology. I know, not fair. Not the way it's supposed to work. Not okay. Nope. Just Jesus' way of doing life. Transformed living, transformed family, transformed relationships means we forgive even before we've been asked. Robert Mulholland, a New Testament, uh, he's passed away now, but he was a New Testament professor and a New Testament scholar, says this. says, forgiveness is the most necessary and difficult of spiritual disciplines. I'll go on to say it is a mark of fully surrendered, radically transformed living. 
Those kind of people, fully surrendered people, radically transformed people, forgive. Now, there's a whole, we could, we could spend a long time talking about forgiveness. Because forgiveness is, is not actually reconciliation. Those things are actually different. Forgiveness is something we do in our soul. Forgiveness is a releasing of what's happening in here. Reconciliation depends on both of us being there. Forgiveness can happen whether reconciliation ever happens, which is why forgiveness has to happen before apologies are actually asked for. And it's a necessary element for us living in peace. Now let's push one more step backwards in the passage, all right? We've seen personal, we've seen family, and then we see this actual nod to missional transformation, to participating in what's happening missionally. The mention of these two women, of Judea and Syntyche, was significant. Paul did not do it by accident. He did it, yes, because there was a conflict in them that needed to be fixed, but I think he was also intentionally doing something else. Paul wanted to highlight the work that these two women were doing. Because Paul believed that their work in the ministry was as important. It was equal to the work that great men in the ministry were doing. He laid them right alongside other men who were working in ministry. Laid them right alongside other, other, other individuals, other men. So women and men, Paul put them on equal footing in what they were doing in ministry. Because Paul believed that all people were gifted for ministry in the church and the kingdom of God. Women and men. And again, we could spend a long time kind of chasing this rabbit. I'm not going to today. But I believe that we, especially in our particular stream of faith, have some confessing to do for the ways in which we have not been faithful to this truth. So Paul mentions Judea and Syntyche because they are prime examples of women, of people living out their God-gifted and God-ordained ministry in the life of the church. And we see in this this nod towards missional transformation. Because in the idea of being missionally transformed and us living in peace and us bringing peace into all of the world, it means that all of us are living in our own giftings. We are living in the ways in which God has gifted us to work in the church, in the world, in the kingdom of God. Experiencing peace means that we are partnering with God to make peace in our world. We are partnering with God to bring recreation to all people and all of creation. Michael Gorman is a New Testament professor. As a matter of fact, he's a New Testament professor here in Baltimore. And recently I read an article that he did, and he wrote it in a fashion of trying to, to create a Pauline letter to the churches in America. Will you pull that slide up for me, Jackson? Um, trying to create a Pauline letter to the churches in America. And I, I just want to read one section of it, not that one. It ought to be a couple more down. There you go. Um, he writes this Pauline letter to the churches in America. And just, just one piece, it's a really great article, a really great letter. But just this one piece says this, and it was so significant to what we were talking about today. It says, the word peace or shalom. To be sure, this word means inner peace and security. But it signifies much more. It means wholeness and harmony. Right relations between us and God, within the human family, and between us and the rest of creation. Peace 
is one of those scriptural words that sums up what God is up to in the world. The mission of God. Friends, it should rattle our cages that the work of God is about shalom, peace in us, among us and others, among us and God, among us and people that we don't like, among all people and all of creation. It should rattle our cages that the work of God is, is about shalom, And yet many of us as his people would have to confess that we don't experience peace in our own life. We don't experience peace in our own souls, in our own communities, in our own neighborhoods. We don't experience peace in our own families. We long for peace, but we don't know what it's like to live in it. And that's the work that God is doing. So what is it that we're missing And this work of shalom, this work of bringing about peace in the world, this is what we are committing to joining God in. This is what it means for us to be partners with God, that we experience shalom, that we experience peace, and that we bring peace for other people. This is what it means for us to instigate radical transformation in every life in the Towson area. We must be people of peace, and we must be people who make peace. Peace. Oh, church, I feel like there are so many of us who do this, this Jesus thing, this, this faith thing, this church thing, and treat it Kind of like an accessory to our life. Not something we're fully committed to. Not something that is, that is really priority. It, it might be one of our priorities. I mean, it's up there on the list. But, but it's not our ultimate priority. Too many of us live ways in faith in which Jesus is not Lord. Meaning over everything else meaning the ultimate priority no matter what else is going on. But instead, we, we use it as this, this accessory, this, this add-on that we can put alongside all of our other personal pursuits. This add-on that we can, can connect as we also pursue fortune and fame, security, power, the American dream, you name it. And we, we align Jesus right along all, all, all those things, believing that what makes us different from the rest of the world is that we're pursuing the exact same things, but we got a little, we got a little add-on of Jesus that's here with us. We, we kind of just bring Jesus alongside. Our motorcycle's still, still deeply pursuing the same thing everyone else is, but, but at least we have a sidecar. And once in a while, we throw Jesus in the sidecar, and we just bring him along in what we're doing. Just an add-on, just an accessory. We love Jesus. Make no, make no mistake about that. I really do believe it's true. We love Jesus, but we love Jesus for what we believe that Jesus can do for us. Man, for generations, we've painted the entire story of salvation as choosing to follow Jesus so that one day we get to live in heaven. That doesn't have anything to do with Jesus. That has to do with what I get out of it. We love Jesus, 
but only if it doesn't cost us too much. We love Jesus, but only if Jesus is willing to go along with all of the other priorities in our life. And that's not true of every one of us, but I feel like it's way too true in most of the church that I see. All of the church, not just Valley, but but churches up and down the street and all over the world. I can't say that that way. Up and down the street and especially in the United States and the Western world. There's all these questions about what it is that stands in the way of the church. And very often I hear that the problem, that what stands in our way is, is the culture, that the culture is attacking, that the culture has changed, that so much is different. And there is no denying that our culture is drastically different than it once was. But here's what I believe is true about the American culture. I think the American culture has grown ambivalent toward the things of Jesus. We like to talk about how much they're against us. And there are a few really minor examples of what that looks like. But I think the actual truth is most of the American culture has grown completely ambivalent to the work of Jesus in the church. That They don't have to be against us. Because they don't see any pressing reason to join us in what we're doing. They don't see any significant thing about this life of following after Jesus. And I think that's primarily because most of us who call ourselves Christ followers are living out our faith in such insignificant ways that it communicates there is absolutely nothing different about us and the rest of the world. So why don't they see something significant in the church or the ways of Jesus? Because most of the people of Jesus live following Jesus in incredibly insignificant ways. We look just like the rest of the world, except we throw a little church attendance on top once in a while. We look just like the rest of the world on social media and on our Instagram feeds and on our Facebook pages and in what we say in Twitter and the ways in which we fight with one another in schools and in workplaces and everywhere else except once in a while we throw Jesus in. Believing that as long as our social media feeds have all of our nasty stuff we should never say as the people of Jesus. But once in a while we throw a highlight into our faith. We're good enough. Accessory. Life is everyone else, but at least I got the Jesus accessory on. Too often the world sees nothing different in us. So there's absolutely no reason to join us in what we're doing. We as a people believe that our God is the God who brings peace. And yet many of us live lives completely devoid of peace. And then we try and tell people about Jesus. And they go, why would I want anything to do with that? You talk about peace, but I don't see any peace. I don't see you living in peace. I don't see you making any peace. Why in the world would I want to be a part of that? Friends, what it looks like for you and I to fully surrender to Jesus. And, 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 and I need you to hear me use the singular, no, plural, whichever, first person plural, is that what it is? Yeah, sorry, I don't remember my English. First person plural in all of this. 
This is not a you, 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 you. It's a we. This is about us because I don't know this kind of fullness of peace in my life right now, but I desperately want to. I want to figure out what it means to fully surrender to Jesus in this way so that I can experience peace. I had this credible image that was given to me recently. The idea that, that what it looks like for us to fully surrender to Jesus and live in this kind of peace. Imagine the idea of a stream flowing through the woods and on top of that stream is a leaf. As we think about the colors that we're experiencing right now and all the leaves that are falling out of the tree, imagine that you and I are, all, are a leaf on that stream. And if we have fully surrendered to what Jesus longs to do in our life, then we coast along that stream wherever it takes us. Fully surrendered to what God is doing. Fully committed to the will of God and absolute transformation. Committed to transformation personally and among our family and missionally to our entire world. And Paul says, then the God of peace will be with you. I want to know and experience and walk in that peace and with that God of peace. Pray with me, would you? Precious Lord Jesus, bring us peace. Bring peace in our souls. Bring peace in our families. Bring peace in our church. Bring peace in our world. And bring peace. Because you, the God, have peace. Have brought alongside you the people of peace. And chosen to use us as peacemakers. People being transformed and bringing transformation. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.